lots of research, which is why I'm very encouraged to take through public meetings regularly to hear what that means, along with attending small group and going to church. So my question is, have you been transformed and how are you going at being just? Today, our aim is to develop, in this sort of next half an hour, a more detailed look at what it means to live a God-honouring, Christ-centred, personal life with regard to justice and doing justice. So last week, to recap for those of you who were here or those of you who weren't, last week I suggested to you that the character of God is seen as revealed to us in the pages of particularly the Old Testament. And in our study last week, we looked at the fact that God's character is one of justice. If you want to know what justice truly and rightly is, go and look at God. That's the claim of the Christian scriptures. That's the claim of Christianity as a worldview. I want to put that out there and say, I think that claim stands up. I think you can go and assess it. Go and read the Old Testament for yourself and see whether or not what I'm saying is right. Go and look at competing worldviews and see whether or not they act as consistently as the Christian worldview. And so last week we explored this idea that God gives a certain expectation of how community would be lived out. And in this case, it was the nation of Israel. God gave certain laws and expected certain, um, expect, had certain expectations of how justice would be done, how his character would be lived out, and that was seen in the nation of Israel. The, the sort of the trajectory, if you like, of that justice, as we identified from the Zechariah 7 passage, was particularly towards the poor, the widow, the fatherless and the alien. Particular groups within Israel's community and some without, or some who were outside of Israel's community. And we also saw that the expectation was that for those outside of the nation of Israel, the nations, or the Gentiles, as was the references, that actually there was a certain expectation that the justice that was expected of God in the nation of Israel would one day be brought to those nations. And in the person of Jesus, we see he is the one who brings the justice of God in two ways. Firstly, because as humanity in our natural state, we are unable to please God. We act in rebellion against him or we're disobedient. And God in his justice will hold us accountable for that. And because we're unable to fulfil his righteous requirements, thus God will punish us. That's the teaching of the Bible. That sounds hard. But God's plan was that Jesus would be the one who takes that just punishment for you and for I, and for anyone else in humanity who will accept it. So the justice of God in dealing rightly with the punishment that was due to us as being taken on his son Jesus. That's the first way we see the justice of God in Jesus. The second way, though, is we see the way in which Jesus acts and lives is that he lives out the justice of God's character. Which, on one hand, shouldn't be surprising because he is fully man and fully God. And we see it demonstrated in the way in which he heals people. He restores them physically. But at the same time, he restores them back into community. The thing that they would have been excluded from because... They were unclean, for example. One of the things we finished with last week was that as God's people, Christians, are now expected to live the way God expected his Old Testament people to live. We are expected as Christian people to live out the character of God in this world. Because justice has been given to us in the death of the Lord Jesus. And therefore we should extend that to as many people as we can. So justice, I proposed, was something that was just not just something received, but something that was done as well. It was not just a passive thing. If you 
you want to be a Christian and live justly, you actually have to be active in doing it. So today we look at the implications for us in terms of what that means personally. And to start with, we just want to start, I just want to make a brief aside about the notion of rights. Because the language of rights is one which I think has particularly come up in our community and our society uh, in the last five to ten years. A Christian philosopher and theologian called Woltorstorff, W-O-L-T-E-R-S-T-O-R-F-F, if you're taking notes, just write some bloke starting with W, if you missed it, and you can get it from me later. Uh, he argues this about rights. He says rights are normative social relationships. And if you're an engineer, you're not really used to sort of all this philosophical stuff, stick with me for about two minutes. Just two minutes, okay? Rights are normative, normal social relationships, okay? A right is often with regard to somebody else. So you're thinking, okay, me, in society, there's somebody else over there. We have normative, sort of normal social relationships. A right is often with regard to them. But in the same way, a right is also with regard to oneself because we exist in relationship. You see that? It actually works both ways. Now, one of the things that this means, therefore, is that rights between two people start to create a bond. And so these bonds mean that people have legitimate claims on other people. That's what rights means. I have a claim on you. You have a claim on me. And this results in an expectation of two things. Firstly, action and refrain. You see how this would work? There's two of us. We're in some sort of relationship together. We might know each other well. We might have only just met this afternoon. But nevertheless, there is still a right of action that I have towards you and a right of refrain that I have towards you. I'm expected to do certain things for you and I'm also expected to not do certain things for you. This is the language of rights and it's reciprocal. I would be expecting no less from you towards me. Some people argue um, today that the right, things we've been talking about, has the priority over the good. Some people will say, well, I'm allowed to carry out this action towards you because that's a good thing. So we start getting into this language of what is actually the best thing to be doing. Should we be doing the good thing or the best thing? And the language gets a little bit confused. Let me try and give you an example of Wallstorff uses. Wallstorff says, I think it would be a good thing for me to have a Rembrandt painting. I think it would be a good thing for me to have a Rembrandt painting as well. But that doesn't give me the right to a Rembrandt painting. I can't just walk into the museum and say, ah, a Rembrandt, I think it would be a good thing if I had it. And take it. Do you see the difference between a good and a right? And we confuse the language. We actually merge the language and it gets confused. Often we think there are things that we think will be good for us. But we use the language of rights. And we all know this. Why? Because we've all done it. I'll tell you why, because when you were a child, you looked at all sorts of other things and you thought, ah, that would be good for me, therefore it's mine. <laughs> you see? And so if you had siblings, either you're the eldest child, the eldest child, we know what it's like, don't we? To have our younger siblings come and take our stuff. Because they think it's good for them to have it. And we want to withhold it. We want to, we're at that point now and say, we stand on our rights and we say, no, that's mine. You have no right to that. It's mine, my ownership. You see, what we've, we've started to confuse language. Now, we can extend it to all sorts of other things, okay? and some of which we're going to look at next week. 
But it's worth at this point just starting with that language of rights and ownership. Because the other thing that the language of rights leads to is, as Waldstorff argues, it leads to what we call boundary markers for life goods. And a little illustration demonstrates that, doesn't it? We often want to be able to say, it's my right to, and if we own property, it's my right to anything that we now own, we feel we have a right to. Okay, now is this possible to actually achieve some sort of um, just society today? Well, as I looked at last week, I proposed no because of our, our fallen state before God. And this means two things. Firstly, we live unjustly in our natural disobedient state before God because we want to try and do things our own way. And secondly, we live unjustly with each other. And so on one hand, we shouldn't be surprised that society just doesn't work. We shouldn't be surprised that our relationships don't work. But we should, as Christians be hoping that actually they get restored and that our society, we're looking for restoration because we want to try and live out the character of God. Now, the way in which we try and live out this is by de- developing what's called an ethical framework. Engineers, still with us? Good? Yep, great. Well, look, sometimes the engineers struggle with this sort of thing, okay? Blood seems you're all over it, aren't you? Yeah, good. Okay, let me talk to you briefly about what it means to develop a personal ethic. I've got a little diagram that I think will help you here. Um, An ethical framework is simply a a way of thinking or a framework that enables our core beliefs to be put into action. So I think if I asked you certain questions about the way in which you behave, we'd be able to, from a diagnostic point of view, work out why you behave the way you behave. And in the end, it comes back to some core belief. The ethics is really just the framework that moves you from your core belief to the way in which you behave. Sometimes we act ethically which means our actions are consistent with our core belief. At other times we act unethically and we surprise ourselves because we act in a way that wasn't quite expected. Um, Dr. Andrew Cameron has written a book called The Joined Up Life. Uh, This is a book uh, on developing a framework for ethics. It's very, very helpful. Very, very helpful. If you want to read a book on Christian ethics, this is the one to start with. Um, If you'd like to try and read a book on Christian ethics before you leave university, this is the one to start with. Uh, Because I think you'll you'll struggle to come to it actually after uni, partly because life will start to get busy and you'll get distracted. Let me give you the quick summary. This is what he argues. He argues that in this framework of Christian ethics, the Bible contains ethical positions, which are shaped by the language of rights, values, rules and results. And... He's put this together in this framework that argues that Christian ethics has, if you like, five individual poles. It talks about creation, a Jesus-shaped community <coughs> and a new future. It talks about God's character and it talks about commands for love. Some of which you see we've sort of picked up last week, haven't we? Some of these got mentioned. We talked a little bit about creation, we talked about God's character, we talked about the Jesus-shaped community and we looked at the commands in the Old Testament. The beauty of the way in which Andrew has put it together is it helps us understand a little bit about the biblical framework that moves from creation through Jesus to the new future, all of which we've dealt with at Anton this year, all of it. And then it also helps us see at God's character, 
is revealed in different aspects. God's character is revealed in creation, within the Jesus-shaped community, and within the new future. So too are the commands. Now, by way of framework, this is a really helpful way of thinking. Let me see if I can try and apply this to us using this little diagram. See, the challenge we've got, and I notice I've tried to not prejudice any particular gender, so I'm going male or female, I'm not assuming they're married. Okay? They're just... If you're a male, you can pick it, you get it, you work it out, okay? <laughs> For us individually, as we exist in the world, this is really what's going on, consciously or subconsciously. We are given certain rules in society that we either choose to follow or not follow. We're given certain rights, or we expect certain rights, that impact on our decision-making. We have certain values that have been given to us, either by our parents, by our upbringing, by what we read, by our friends, by... And we want certain things in life. We want certain results. Sometimes they're material. Sometimes they're personal. Sometimes they're emotional. Sometimes they're relational. The study of ethics and the process of ethics is all about trying to get that, get on top of that and work hard at doing it so that we understand the context in which we operate, both with regard to rules and rights, we do a good analysis of what our values are and why we hold them, with an expectation that that will lead to certain results. So here we go in terms of trying to do this in the context of Christian thinking and just with regard to justice. Okay, I'm really drilling down. The passage that we looked at last week, can you open it up? It was Luke 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan, by way of recap, there's three particular passages we're looking at this afternoon. Luke 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan, remember, the traveller is waylaid by robbers, is half dead on the side of the road, the priest and the Levite walk by on the other side, none interested in helping, and yet the Samaritan, the man's enemy, goes across and assists the man at great personal cost. Doesn't just drop some money and walk on, doesn't just ask if the traveller needs some help, but actually goes and picks him up, puts him on the donkey, cares for him, takes him to the inn, and then at further personal cost financially ensures that the innkeeper provides a certain level of care to restore the traveller to good health. The question that the passage raises that we need to wrestle with, which was a question someone asked me last week, is the question of, but how many people should I help? And should I help everybody? The passage raises for us personally two broad questions. How many travellers, wounded travellers if you like, to keep going with the illustration, should I help? And how many wounded travellers can I help? Now there are two different questions that we often confuse. Because the first question, how many should I help, is actually a question of attitude. The second question, sorry, the first question, how many should I help, is a question of attitude. The second question, how many can I help, is a question of means. And in answer to the first question, if we act consistently with the character of God, oh, I want to suggest that the answer to the question of how many travellers should I help is help all of them. Help all of them. For surely that is the way that God acts. That is the way God responds. That whenever he sees a broken person, he helps them. He doesn't discriminate and only helps some. But the second question sometimes a harder question to answer and the answer I want to give at the moment is help as many as you can as you are able. Because for some of us 
We may only have the means to be able to help one. For others of us, we may have the means to be able to help many. First and foremost, though, what God is primarily interested in is not the extent of the means that you can provide to the problem, but the extent of the attitude that you have in showing the love and justice of God. And I think sometimes we confuse it by the answers that we give. So I'm approached on the street, and it's happened a number of times. People have come up to me and said, can you spare a couple of dollars? And at that point, I can honestly, genuinely say, I'm sorry, I have nothing on you. No coins, no money in my wallet. That may be your experience. The reason why I generally have no money on me is because I have children. <laughs> and there sometimes is money in my wallet, and next time I go, suddenly it will disappear. However, the answer's not quite true, is it? Someone comes up to me and says, can you help me? I say, I'm sorry, I've got no money. I've got nothing. It's sort of a half-truth, isn't it? I can legitimately, if my pockets were turned out and my wallet empty, argue I have no coins to give you. However, I can go over to the ATM and withdraw $100. Because I have $100 sitting in my bank account. See, sometimes I avoid the question. I avoid the question. And when someone asks me, can you help? I answer immediately with the answer to a means question rather than answering with the question of, yes, I should help you. Let me see what extent I can go to to give you help. And I think sometimes we always need to examine our own motives whenever we're asked. What could this sort of help look like? Well, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the story of the Good Samaritan, help takes two forms. Notice the nuance there. The help is financial. Well, broadly speaking, the book's practical. Now, the Samaritan walks over and helps up the man, puts him in his dormitory. There's a very practical nature to the help. The help is very much financial as well, in the man actually pays for the traveller's time at the inn until he is restored. But the thing I want to pick up here is, yes, there is financial assistance involved, but there is also personal involvement in restoring the traveller. And I think sometimes we find it difficult to move beyond the financial assistance. At times, and I'll talk a little bit about this later, well, if I get time, it's easy to sort of click the button and donate. There's my $20. Now, can I say, if you, if you get around to doing that, you've actually moved a lot further than not doing it. Please hear me say that's a really good thing. Because if our survey this afternoon is anything to go by, I think many of you have really good intent to help out. I think many of you have really good intent to try and bring about and act justly. But it just seems like you don't quite even get to the point where you click the button that says donate. Maybe because you make excuses, oh, I don't have enough. I say, friends, God is not interested in the amount. He's interested in the attitude. If you have five dollars, give five dollars. If you have five hundred dollars, consider how much of that you should give. However, the parable of the Good Samaritan goes further. It actually says, God doing justice in the world, and if we're to do the justice that God expects, requires our ongoing personal involvement. I take it that's what the Samaritan does to the traveller. And that's where we really start to feel uncomfortable, I think. I feel uncomfortable about that. 
I know I feel that if I click the button that says donate, my guilt is gone. I've given. But what about my ongoing personal involvement? And maybe issues you need to consider. Second passage, James chapter 2. Turn with me to James chapter 2. I'm sorry I don't have it on the screen. If you're looking for the book of James, if you get to sort of 1 and 2 Peter, you've gone too far. You need to come back a little bit and when you hit Hebrews, you know you've gone too far the other one. James chapter 2. Let me briefly read the first part of this passage. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor man. Are you not? The rich, the one, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honourable name by which you were called? If you really fulfil the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Do you hear that last verse? If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Do you show partiality towards people? When I initially did some work in this passage, I thought the passage was talking to the rich. But I've realised now that that's not right. I think the passage is talking to anybody, be they rich or poor. And asking them the question, do you show partiality towards the rich over the poor? Do you show partiality towards the rich over the poor? Think about this when you go to church yourself because there's a particular context I think in which James is writing when someone comes into your assembly. The ecclesia word, probably some sort of Christian gathering. So let's keep it in that context for now. If someone walks into your church, how do you, what attitude do you have towards them? Do you show partiality towards them? In this case, let's just sort of go straight to the chase. Do you just sit with your friends every week? Do you sit in the same seat every week? Are you interested in the outside? Because they may be the poor among you. They may be the one from a broken family who desperately wants someone to talk to. Well, are you you only interested in those who you think will somehow advance your standing in the congregation somehow? Because I think the other thing that this passage demonstrates is that if you want to do justice in the world, I think it will mean giving up stuff. Now, we see that in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You'll need to give up your material possessions for the sake of the other other person. In this case, what is it that you have to give up? I think what you have to give up is some of your social capital. You have to give up some of your societal standing. You need to be prepared to say, I'm going to come over here and stand with the poor. I'm going to come over here and stand with the disenfranchised. Those who are not popular. Those who don't look good. Those whose society does not respect. Are you prepared to do that? Because friends, here's the warning of scripture. What does it say? Verse 9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin. (coughs) Friends, can I urge you, please do not sin. For the sake of the glory of the name of the Lord Jesus and your own salvation, please, friends, do not sin. And so if you're showing partiality, the command is clear. Do not show partiality. I'm not saying that's going to be an easy thing. 
to do. But for some of us, it's a very clear rebuke. Third passage, Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, the passage that was read for us earlier. By the way, just as we're flipping, just to bring a little bit of a light moment into it, as I was reading down the text, you know what I did? I got to the bottom of the column, you know what I did? I did this. Acts 4, 32 to 37. Notice why I wanted the whole passage read in context, which is why we went back to verse 23. See, if we had just started at verse 32, the danger would have been that we'd taken the passage out of context. But the context is the proclamation of the Word of God as a result of the believers praying that God would work through them. The question of the tension between evangelism and social action is one we deal with next week. But I just tell you, here's the context. The two are actually intimately tied together, aren't they? Here in Acts 4, the underlying theme is the equality of, the equality of provision. The equality of provision. Here, some people give up the rights that they have as an individual by selling their property such that others would be provided for. So that no one is in need. And I think at this point we do well to give ourselves a bit of a spiritual health check. We need to go home and have a little bit of a look and say, do I really need all this stuff? Because if you don't really need it, why do we keep acquiring it? And if we don't really need it, why don't we get rid of it and follow Jesus' command elsewhere in Scripture, sell what you have and give to the poor? That may be something that you're convicted by. In which case, friends, don't put off the conviction. Don't wait for another offer. Go home this afternoon, put your stuff on eBay, sell it and give the money to the poor. Actually, it's really easy to do. You know what it takes? It just takes one click. And then you self-discipline to make sure that when the money comes into your account, you actually do give away to the poor. That is also in the context of church, which is partly what this is about. Is this the way your church acts? Do people actually bring money to the elders because they've got more than they need? say, here, this is for others who are in need. Or does your church really only ask for money to pay for the minister? Don't you have to think about that? Does your church have a widow's fund? I suggested this yesterday to the public. Now I'm a bit wary about doing it. I'll watch it on the weekend. On the weekend, go and talk to one of the elders in your church. Read 1 Timothy 5 first. Talk about how you look after widows. Go and have a, a very polite conversation with one of the elders in your church and say, excuse me, can I ask, do we have a widow's fund? Does our church actually set aside money somewhere for people who are genuinely in need in the parish? Like the widows. Just ask the question and see what response. And then say, how, how should we as a church be engaging with 1 Timothy chapter 5? See, one of the ways to bring about that change may be that you might need to go and sell some stuff and actually put some money in the plate and on the envelope have your church give money in the box, in the bank, wherever it is, just right, for the widow and the underprivileged in the church. I suspect, if I'm right, and unfortunately I think I am, most churches won't know what that means. Our, our generations, friends, we've shifted. 30 or 40 years ago, that was common practice. Most churches would have a separate bank account and that's it, on the widow's fund. I know some churches would still uphold that practice. Okay, what do we do with these three passages? Uh, with the um, parable of the Good Samaritan, with the James 2 passage, with the Acts 4 passage? I think living justly is four particular things. Firstly, 
And we're just building a case over three weeks. And I've got four minutes to finish. Living justly reflects the character of God, will generally be directed towards those who are not as provided for, will necessarily involve giving up something, both material goods and societal capital, social standing, and will involve an active, ongoing, other person-centeredness. I'll say it again. Firstly, involves reflecting the character of God, will be directed towards those who are not as provided for, will necessarily involve us, don't assume someone else is going to do it, friends, will involve us, you and me, giving up something, both goods and also, I think, societal capital, social capital, and will involve an active, ongoing, other person-centeredness. Now, I'd like to pray and finish at the moment, but I've got some application for you. I'm going to talk even quicker. Here are four things that I want to say about that, and I'm very wary about putting you under legalism, so if you like, you can treat it as Christian wisdom. Four points, A, B, C and D. A, be more other person-centred. Be more other person-centred in thought and in action. I think here is what it means to love our neighbour. It means thinking, friends, less about ourselves and more about other people. That would be hard work for all of us. Because all we really want to do is just be interested in ourselves. I think to do that, you actually need to know other people and to know how to meet their needs. So particularly with regard to doing justice, you actually need to go and get to know people who are poor. You get, need to get to know the widow, the alien, the fatherless, the refugee perhaps. You see the program in last night? Well, I almost want to say it's mandatory viewing, but I can't say that to you because you're not my children. Uh, <laughs> point of application, be more other person-centred in thought and in action. That's point A. Point B, the poor are rarely considered in our decision-making matrix. How often when you make any decision do you think about the poor? Even less so, I think, in our decision to spend money. I think we think about ourselves, we think about ourselves, ourselves and ourselves, and the cost to us. Do I want to spend time with this person? What we go is, we go, oh, what's it going to cost me? Well, actually, it's going to cost me some time, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to be rich, so you're going to spend some time. Most of our decisions revolve around us, and the poor are generally, rarely considered in our decision-making matrix. So what would it look like in our decision-making matrix for anything and everything to consider the poor? Um, some famous, quite pietistic evangelicals in the past have had the notion that whenever they want to spend money on themselves, they set aside exactly the same amount of money for the poor. Howard Guinness, the founder of the EU, did this. Whenever he wanted to spend money on something, um, I think it was a pet. You wouldn't have a pet. Cost him, I can't remember, 20 shillings or whatever, a week, month. He spent the same amount of money by giving it to the poor. When you go buy a car, it'll cost you anywhere between, depending on how much you can afford, what, $1,500? to about $15,000. Why not? Dollar for dollar. Wow, that car suddenly got twice as expensive, didn't it? Do you really need the car? There's the question. Provision has been made by God for your basic needs. But the decision, the poor really focus, are really considered in our decision making. C, resist the sense of entitlement. I think for us in our generation, in our Western society, this is a significant one. I think we often hear the line in our heads, I deserve it. I do, I deserve it. I've worked so hard. I deserve it. Um, particularly, I was talking to someone the other day, oh, really out of time. I was talking to someone the other day who was trying to persuade me they deserved another overseas holiday. Now, I've been overseas in the last month. My wife and I travelled, she was speaking at a conference. 
Uh, there's nothing inherently wrong with traveling overseas. But I think when the attitude towards travel overseas is because I deserve it, there's something wrong there. But it doesn't have to be just about overseas travel. It can be about anything. I deserve a new pair of shoes. I deserve the latest technology. I deserve the... I think you want, we want to watch ourselves in that way of thinking. And fourthly and lastly, well, no, actually, on the resisting the sense of entitlement, I think you've got to flip it. So flip it and argue and bring about others' entitlements before your own. What are other people entitled to that they're not getting? And think about that rather than think about your own entitlements. D, lastly, be self-controlled. Be self-controlled. I think in the end that's probably our problem. We're not self-controlled enough, friends. And we're not self-disciplined enough. And in this case, under being self-controlled, please, please, please resist consumerism and hedonism. Because the world in which we live is absolutely right with it and it calls on us at every point. And at that point we need to be self-controlled. Nothing wrong with owning possessions in and of themselves, but the challenge is when that becomes a means to an end. Why don't I pray? We'll go after the text. Father God, we give you thanks for your great glorious gospel. We thank you for the death of the Lord Jesus. Father, we know we need your help in this regard to live justly in the world. And we pray, please, Father, that you would help us. We ask, please, Father, that our lives would be transformed and continually shaped to be like you and who you are. Father, please help us to be self-controlled and disciplined in this regard. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.